You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Episode 54, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format where you can learn about what physicians face through expert analysis. In today's episode, I'm joined by my new friend, the delightful Stephanie Slade, Managing Editor at Reason Magazine. And today we're going to venture outside of what we ordinarily talk about in the show, and we're going to talk about abortion. But specifically, we're going to be talking about the interplay on the legal aspects of what is and is not allowable for institutions to engage in when it comes to medical care this obviously is an ancillary, would involve the physicians and nursing staff and what their roles and obligations are to controversial or sometimes morally objectionable to certain people. We're going to be talking about the ACLU specifically and their legal challenges to Catholic hospitals in the United States. Well then, as is usual for the show, drift off to a little conversation about the politics and the overall state of the nation as far as it comes to abortion, where the abortion laws are, and what Stephanie believes is going to be the future of the abortion debate going forward and the possible ramifications of Supreme Court decisions coming down the pike. And just as in episode 53, I have another captive hostage here for this interview while attending Acton University in downtown Grand Rapids, sponsored by the Acton Institute. Acton University is an opportunity for those individuals who are interested in connecting good intentions with sound economic principles. This is essentially a faith-based economics convention of sorts, uh, where you can learn more about the intersection of your faith and how it affects the other parts of your life, both domestic and international policy, social thought, history, and economics. The favorite part of the conference for me, obviously, is the opportunity to interact with these lecturers who will then take the classes alongside you throughout the three days. And as people know who go to conferences, generally you learn more outside the classroom than you do inside. I always find the funny thing about this conference for me 
is most of the people, of course, are PhDs in theology or divinity, and I always have to introduce myself as the other type of doctor here, and also one who hasn't written any books or written any dissertation papers. <laughs> but anyway, you can find more about that at acton.org, and then you can scroll down to the Acton University tab. The next university or conference will be in June of 2020, back in Grand Rapids. And if you do stop by, make sure you send me a note so that we can connect at some point during the breakfast or lunch. I'd love to have the opportunity to meet some of my listeners. As always, the show notes can be found at theparadox.com slash 054. There you can sign up as well to get regular notices of things that I'm sending out, which for the most part have been just announcements of the show coming out. You can also visit my Patreon page where you can support the show gives you the opportunity to find links to other appearances I've made in other podcasts, which are totaling about 10 now, I think. But if you don't want to bother with that, you can certainly just go to the Twitter feed. Find me at, at the Paradox Show, and that's P-R-A-D-O-C-S, and there you can get live action and find out what's going on as far as medicine and my other appearances other shows. Finally, if you've not yet subscribed to the show, please do so on your favorite podcast player and continue to recommend the show to your friends and family and colleagues. I appreciate all the support. And with that, I'd like to introduce a discussion on abortion with Stephanie Slade from Reason Magazine. Enjoy. Well, hello. I'm here with my new friend, Stephanie Slade, a delightful woman who's the managing editor at Reason Magazine, contributing writer at American Magazine. We're here again at Acton University, so I have her captive here at the conference. Uh, we're going to talk about something a little un- unconventional for my show, but we're going to talk about... I guess uh, the politics and the um, some of the legal aspects that go along with some aspects of medicine. So first, doctor or doctor, I'm so used to that. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're going to talk about the piece you wrote last year uh, called "Why Is the ACLU Targeting Catholic Hospitals?" Uh, and so, why don't you go into sort of the backdrop of what that article is about, and um, then we'll kind of go from there, I suppose. Yeah. So this is a, a sort of controversy that's been brewing for a few years. It goes back at least to 2013, when the ACLU and a group called Merger Watch put out a report that just was like sounding the alarm at this horrifying development, which is that there are too many Catholic hospitals in this country. <laughs> and this, is, this was troubling from their perspective because, um, as you, you may guess, Catholic hospitals run by, you know, affiliated with the Catholic Church um, have some rules about the types of, um, the types of procedures and um, quote-unquote care <laughs> sure. that they're willing and not willing to provide. So things like not doing abortions, that's an obvious mm-hmm. one. Also not doing elective sterilization procedures. Um, if, if, um, if, if somebody has a particular um, malady and needs, you know, for, for her, if she has, you know, cancer or something and there needs to be a hysterectomy, that's, that's not what we're talking about. But if somebody just says, I, don't, I have had two kids and I want to stop now, I want you to um, sterilize me, Catholic hospitals... Um, that are that are following the directives of the Catholic Church won't do that, um, and also some some therapies um, associated with transgender folks too, where they sure. they're demanding uh, access to certain surgeries and treatments. Um, that's not an option at a, cas- a Catholic hospital, and so from the perspective of some people on the on the political left, too many Catholic hospitals means. Um, it, too many places where people can't get the get, get the treatment that they think they deserve and that this is a problem. And so they've started launching a series of lawsuits trying to force uh, these hospitals to provide this, this again, quote-unquote right. care. Right. And so, 
And so we're talking about the, the like a salpingectomy. That's you know, oftentimes you have to have your ovary removed for some reason, like you mentioned, cancer. That would obviously be okay. Uh, but the Catholic hospitals, and we'll just say we'll just kind of say religious. Although essentially we're talking about Catholic hospitals at this point. But it could uh, be it could be other. There yeah, are, well. but pretty much the Catholic Church is the one that's the main sort of driver. Although I don't know if it's a church necessarily anymore with like Trinity Health and stuff. Like this was their Catholic leadership may not get their dictates from the Catholic Church itself. Uh, the, the U.S. Co- Conference of Catholic Bishops has put out a document, a set of directives that, is, that Catholic-affiliated and Catholic-owned hospitals are supposed to abide by that governs these, these questions. So, um, so they are supposed to be, and, and generally, generally speaking, the bishop of the, of the location that the hospital is in has some oversight responsibility to ensure that the hospital is run, you know, operating in accordance with those directives. Right. And I think to back up a little bit further, if we want to look at the history of, of hospitals, I mean, most hospitals, when you look at the turn of the century or even before in the 1800s, they were philanthropic institutions. Generally, they were th- through a church or some civic organization. Uh, I interviewed Dr. Uh, Phil Booth, who was talking about the NHS with, in Britain. And there are a few Catholic hospitals, not many, and they got some exemptions. So they actually were outside the NHS system because they were so, such a small percentage in, the, in, the, in England, obviously. It's much, the Catholics were sort of driven out. <laughs> it was mostly Anglican. But... Um, what is the? Why don't you just go through the, if you have the idea of the history of of, I guess the church, and hospitals in the United States, and then sort of go from there, move on to the discussion. Yeah, some of the research I did um, in preparing to write this article uh, was fascinating. I found that, especially in this country, and sort of in the new world, as as we were settling a new continent, um, there there was all this need for. Um, services on the frontier, both uh, both hospitals and schools and orphanages and things like that. And very often, the the, um, the people who stepped in to fulfill those services were actually Catholic sisters. So so members of uh, women women religious, you know, members of, of religious orders, mostly Catholic, who would travel out to these. It, it sounds kind of crazy, but they would travel out to these frontier communities and they would establish um, a hospital or a clinic or um, a school or what, what have you. Sure. And and so many of the oldest hospitals in the country um, are are faith based. They're they were founded by Catholic um, religious sisters, and um, and they were they were providing services when there were when there were there was no one else to do that. It was either you know it was it was either somebody come in and, and offer care as a sort of act of, of charity and service, um, or these people would go without. Yeah, it, it is hard for us to envision now in 2019. Uh, and even anyone within two generations of us, it, it, we have a fairly modern healthcare system. Even in 1960, it was much more. Is it was nothing like it was at the turn of the century, right? And it is hard to imagine. Really, only 130 years ago, let's say, there was a frontier. I mean, in many ways, there there was areas with no civilization. And so, if anyone needed care for anything or any sort of, there were no um, there were no formal institutions most of the time. And so, the church or those who were looking for mission work. To that, to, who today go to Malaysia or Burma or wherever? I mean, then they were going to you know Wyoming or what, exactly right. I mean, so that's they had to fill those 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 roles were not being filled by the civil society in that area because it was poor or rural or you know just didn't exist yet. Right, exactly, and 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 plus they were also dealing with a different ty- different types of medical issues at the time. So uh, essentially plagues right right yeah these were these were uh highly contagious diseases that often these women religious were they were they were nursing patients through malaria and whatever else and um and and there was stories about 
Catholic doctors and nurses, um, you know, they, they contracting leprosy and, uh, but they, they felt like this is for the glory of God. And so they weren't, they weren't worried. There, there's stories about how some of the pro more professional doctors were, they wanted, they wanted the, the sisters as their nurses because they were fearless. They said, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's in, I guess a modern equivalent, like doctors without borders where you're almost in a war zone, delivering care in, in a way again, without concern about your own safety. Right. I mean, so it's probably a different calling as far as what, what motivates you, but essentially I guess it's the same sort of thing. So we'll now back up to the present. <laughs> and we look at this controversy. Uh, I've been looking for someone to talk to about the conscience subjecting thing, and this is not exactly it, but there's definitely a question when it comes to medicine. You know, what is the obligation for someone who's providing health care? Uh, if you're a physician or a nurse, um, what... What are, you, what are you required to do? I mean, there's, there's a morality question, I think, you know, uh, which is maybe a little different than this question because this is more, we're going to focus more on the legal one right now. The legal distinction of why is a hospital different than a school, for instance, because a Catholic, you know, Catholics run adoption agencies, they run schools, they run churches, or not obviously churches, but I mean, and hospitals. So how is the, how does the ACU in this case, or I guess, you know, advocates, why do they see... Healthcare is different than, say, going to a Catholic school and saying you have to teach X, Y, or Z. It's important to recognize that um, although these lawsuits have been coming fast and furious for a number of years now, they haven't been successful. And there's a reason they haven't been successful, and it's because there's really no legal grounds. I mean, they, it's a weak case that they're trying to make. Um, but they, they're. Their claim is that if you are, if you want to operate a hospital and you're opening your hospital to the public, then you have to do everything. I mean, it's actually, I, I interviewed um, Carol Keehan. She, she's, a, she's actually a sister, a religious sister, and she also heads up the Catholic uh, Health Association, so the overarching group that oversees all of these different Catholic mm -hmm. hospitals. I interviewed her for the story, and, and she was saying, like, it's actually crazy because everybody understands that there's some hospitals that don't do some things. Sure. Different hospitals specialize. Some different hospitals are different sizes and are able to, you know, to offer a wider array of services than others. And nobody walks into a hospital that doesn't have a neurosurgery department and says, I demand that you do neurosurgery on me because you have an operating room. Nor would you want to, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but that does, seem to be, that does seem to be the argument they're making. And, and it's also very often couched in terms of discrimination, which I don't think is a, a legitimate uh, a charge to, to lodge here. But they'll say you're discriminating against women mm -hmm. <laughs> um, by not providing them with these services. Because there aren't really any equivalent uh, male ser services that are not, right? I mean, well, it's not elective sterilization, right? That that. Um, sure, I guess if vasectomy. Sure, uh, yeah. yeah. So, but as far as the, I mean, it, fundamentally, what we're talking about is we're talking about abortion, right? I mean, if it weren't for abortion, I don't think I don't really think the ACLU would be going would be banging the doors in the hospital saying we demand that you sterilize people. Well, maybe not. But now the the new hot issue is these transgender what, what they call gender-confirming care, mm -hmm. surgeries and therapies. Right. And so that's now, um, that's the new frontier. It's almost the, the hotter issue than even abortion. Well, sure. And I would say it's been interesting, but I've been noticing just in my own care. I mean, I've seen a, a lot more of it. We're, we're doing hysterectomies, we're doing, uh, and we're doing mastectomies. I mean, depends, you know, who's coming through the door. Uh, and, and even in an area where I practice, I would say it's not, I wouldn't say there's a, it's not an area you would expect to have 
a huge demand for this sort of service. But we are seeing a lot. Um, now, maybe we're drawing from a larger area because we're a large hospital, health system. But I've talked to people in other places of the country, and they're seeing it as well. And so I guess the, other, the question is, you know, is you can, you can make an argument, I guess, more and more easily with abortion. You can say, well, there's, there's a question whether you're taking a life. You know, and there's and that's sort of the fundamental question I feel when it comes to the abortion: is it a life? Is it not a life? And are you taking it? Whereas in this case, it's sort of like: are you just doing a cosmetic surgery or not? Right? right. And so, from a from a, do you think that changes the 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 legal argument at all? I don't know if it does actually. Um, although abortion is a hot button issue in a way that many other some of these other procedures um, aren't. Uh, ultimately, this is the First Amendment question and, and mm-hmm. so that's what the grounds on which these cases have been decided so far which again have essentially unanimously come down on the side of the hospital systems these catholic, catholic hospitals and hospital systems the judges have said like we may we may even agree we may we may even want to side with the aclu but the <laughs> first amendment is the first amendment and it says what it says and so we can't um we can't we just can't find a legal rationale that makes sense to allow us to side with the ACLU. Um, part of the legal argument that, that the the ACLU and their allies are making is that this is especially, their side is especially strong, they say, in communities where there is only one hospital, and that's a Catholic hospital. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, okay, maybe maybe if there's a bunch of hospitals to choose from, our, our case is weaker. But if, if there's only one hospital in the community... Um, and you have to go. It's something like if it, if it would take you more than 45 minutes to get to the next nearest hospital, well, then sh- surely you should not have to travel 45 minutes to get an abortion. Right. <laughs> Which I still, I still obviously think that's a weak, <laughs> a very weak um, and questionable argument. But that's one of the things they're saying, and I think that they're able to. There's more. Um, they they can garner more sympathy when they can say, well, it's there's only well, there's a sole what they say a sole provider of care in a community. If that's a Catholic hospital, then maybe the hospital has some extra obligations that 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 could um, outweigh the First Amendment. But the courts have said no. The First Amendment outweighs even even that case that they're making. Right. So the access issue is not even enough for them at this point to. Get, and it's interesting because I think you if you look at Europe or uh, which is probably where this I mean. I'm sure the same arguments have been had in Europe, but there's that First Amendment is it is very unique to the United States, right? I mean, it it provides protections for religious institutions and for individuals to sort of do more what they want to do and what they feel like they're your obligations are less, I suppose, right? Right. But you know, on the conscientious objector point, um, I do think there is a, a limit to the First Amendment that is worth um, acknowledging, and that actually. Um, Sometimes people on on the right on this issue maybe go too far on I think, which is um, on the one hand I think that the that to force a hospital or a clinic to do procedures that 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 you know the owner has uh, conscience based objections to is clearly a violation of the Constitution. But there's another thing which is what if you have um, a public hospital that uh, is employing people should the should its employees have the right to claim conscientious objector status mm-hmm. should, it, should a should a doctor be able to say I don't do abortions um, and what if you have a private hospital that wants to offer those services is that private hospital hospital required under the law to employ people even if those people say well I disagree and I want an exception and I'm not so sure that I can get behind the government stepping in and forcing a private hospital or clinic to um, have to employ people. I mean, I'm very pro-life, but if we are in a legal regime where abortion is legal 
And if a clinic wants to offer abortion, I don't like the idea. I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of the government saying, well, you must hire people even if they're going to refuse to offer one of the services that you that you as a, the owner of this clinic or hospital wants to offer. Oh, I see what you're saying. So shouldn't it be, ultimately, I think that, that I'm also a libertarian, so I'm one of the <laughs> unusual pro-life libertarians out there, but... Um, Not that unusual, I think. What's... I think there are more. I think there are more than uh, for a long time people believed there were. I, there are more. Of I us. feel like it's, I don't think it's a fifty-fifty, but it's a sixty-forty split. I bet could be, um, and, but I think that actually the libertarian sort of respect for property rights um, solves this problem more easily, because uh, I think if we're going to be on the side of um, an employer who says I don't want to pay for birth control, or an employer or a business owner who says I don't want to bake a cake for a gay wedding because I don't believe in it, if we're going to side with these uh, these sort of business owners and employers on the grounds that the, the business is their property and they should have the right to run it the way they want to, then I think we, we probably also have to extend that same freedom to a business owner or an employer that says, like, I only want to hire people who are who share my pro-choice values, you know? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting, you know, if you're, if you're a small hospital, let's say, and you're going to provide a service like, let's say, abortion, and, and as an anesthesiologist, so I would generally don't have anesthesia services for that procedure. But if there was a procedure that I sort of consciously objected to, um, would you be compelled to, would I be compelled to to perform it or to assist in it? And uh, I guess I would say I don't think anyone's compelled to to assist in whatever they think is morally objectionable. But it's probably not unreasonable for that that hospital or clinic to say, well, if you are unwilling to do what's done in this place, you're no longer either welcome here or maybe at a minimum, you have to find some way of alleviating this. So find someone else. Find, if you're not willing to do it, is your partner willing to come by and do the do that procedure? And and so what we'll see in in our um, here in Grand Rapids, I will have we have a Catholic hospital here in town that's actually not our group doesn't provide coverage for, but we will see the sterilizations that come from you know the woman's given birth two days ago or three days ago, and sometimes even the obstetrician who delivered in that other hospital will come. And very rarely comes to our hospital, but has privileges so they can come and do the, the tubal ligation, you know. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I'm sure the other, the, the hospital knows that they're doing this, and they don't probably object to that process, but it's just like, as long as it's not our institution, we're okay with that. But maybe those, I, I think most of these things can be worked out, sort of, you know. There's, there's, a, there's a way to um, negotiate these issues up front in a civil way and, it, and, and under the sort of contractual, again, legal regime that we have where, you know, you can say, like, I'm a hospital and I, I want to hire people. I, I, you know, you, a qualification for a job at my hospital is that you'd be willing to do these things. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm not going to force you to, to, to do these services if you go work somewhere else. But if you want to draw a paycheck from my from from my business, then you know you gotta be willing to do the the thing that we exist to do. And even if I personally, I'm speaking for myself now, even if I think that that thing ought not be legal and is not moral, um, you know that's a, that's a battle we need to win at a sort of cultural level. I think before we can before we can be demanding that private a private person who has a business um must employ some because the same this is this actually is the flip side of the issue in some states they've tried to pass laws that say that business owners may not discriminate against women who have had abortions well what that actually means in practice is if i am a um or employers may not discriminate uh what if i'm what if i'm an employer who's hiring people to work at my pro-life ministry 
am I am I not am I allowed to discriminate against and and, and um, you know a woman who says I'm I'm a, a proud abortion advocate? Um, <laughs> of, of course, I should be allowed to discriminate against them. Um, I should be able to decide what qualifications matter for my organization, and and we should respect the rights of people on the other side to also you know even if we disagree with them and we want to we want to argue with them and tell them why they're wrong, um, we shouldn't use the try to use the law to force them to um, enter into a contractual business relationship with somebody, in, in this case, a formal um, employment, an employment relationship against their will. Right. I, I agree. And, and one of the something that's a little bit unique to hospitals is now, although nowadays most physicians, 70 percent or so, are employed by the hospital system itself. So one could say they would have contractual obligations to the hospital, the facility. Uh, you know, not long ago, you were basically an independent physician and you would bring your business to a hospital. You may have only one hospital you go to, you might go to a couple. And so you might be someone who would be an obstetrician working at the Catholic hospital and also have at the, the nonprofit or whatever, the secular you know, hospital system. And so you may choose to move your business to different places based on what they want to do and what they allow. And so, um, and so in some ways, you kind of that works itself out as well. So... And I think it's even more, it's easier to, for these things to work themselves out. The less there are, again, t- top-down government regulations that, you know, because mar- the market can come up with creative solutions that we, it would ha- be hard for me to even envision. So, you know, may- standalone clinics that offer just certain services maybe um, could be a solution to to this problem, but only if the government gets out of the way and doesn't try to regulate those those new business arrangements out of existence. Right. I mean, that's... All I talk about in the shows <laughs> is ways of getting around, not getting around the government, but I mean, just finding uh, disruptive, innovative solutions to, for solving problems. And there are lots of docs doing things. Uh, I, one of the interesting aspects of this is, uh, you know, you look at the regulations, rules that have been imposed on the Catholic ministries, like the adoption agencies in Europe. And I think one of the, one of the expectations by, the, by those who advocate for forcing people to do certain things, like the Catholic Church in this instance, is the assumption that once they win, the church will capitulate and do it. And it, we, as you look at Europe, they said, you got to, you know, we have these new rules for adoption. And the Catholic Church said, okay, we just close them all down, which I'm sure was not the expectation, right? I don't think anyone would be advocating for all these things. And suddenly these hospitals just, okay, we're just, and they close the doors. I mean, it's not unreasonable to think the Catholic Church would do that, right? Right. Um, and and what's, what's crazy is that... You know, again, like I said, one of the arguments being made is, well, this is—it's especially important that we force these hospitals to do what we want when they're the when they're the sole sole provider of hospital care in a community. But what that really means is, no other hospital has been able to figure out how to stay afloat in these rural communities, mostly rural communities. Sure. Yeah. Um, the Catholic Church is willing to sustain losses in order to keep hospital care available in these places. And if you try to force the Catholic Church to endorse abortion and, and to perform abortions. The Catholic Church is going to close its hospital, and there's going to be nobody providing care in these places. It's it's not going to be, um, I mean, it's not going to be good for the people on the ground there. It's going to be much worse. Right, and even in a city like ours, where we have a couple of hospital systems, to lose a third of them is not going to be advantageous to us. And and ours tends to serve more of the underserved and a lot of the trauma and things like that. So those people just no longer have a place to access and and get care. And I think. And I think actually one of the court cases actually was specifically the hospital system here in Grand Rapids, I think was. Um, so I guess with the ACLU, do they, what sort of standing do they have? Or do they just find someone and they just help support their case? Yeah, right. Okay. So they're, not, they're not technically, um, they're, they're representing mostly women who have, 
who have, for example, um, delivered uh, delivered a baby and or you know given birth and then wanted to to be sterilized and then the hospital has said you know you can't do that here we can we can transfer you to another hospital but we we can't do that here and they've said that the the fact that they had to wait even you know a day or two right, and go to right. another hospital count says you know severe emotional distress and therefore they should be they should be required to have get, you know, they, they were they were denied care and necessary care i guess that they should have been given and and that so the, the aclu is representing these women and they have had at various times entire like campaigns um websites that they put out where they say they, they encourage or solicit women to come and get, tell them their story and so that they can pick the most um, sympathetic sounding, you know, potential plaintiff. Well, they're lawyers, right? I mean, it's just like any class action suit. You want to follow, you want to find the saddest case. And right. I, I'm a supporter of the Institute for Justice and they find the saddest cases <laughs> to promote the economic liberty cases as well. Like, right, the, the hair braider who's right. forced to, you know, six, endure 600 hours of cosmetology training that doesn't actually, you know, involve her trade. Um, is there is there an emphasis a move in any way to go after uh, physicians to, to to force them to be part of this process or has it just been an institutional sort of attack at this point through legal? I think the lawsuits have all been against hospitals and hospital systems, um, but essentially, a thing to keep in mind is that these are individual practitioners as well that would be coerced. Um, so if if the ACLU were to win one of its lawsuits. Um, and let's say the, a court ruled that a Catholic hospital had to perform <coughs> certain procedures. Um, you know, hospitals don't do things. People do things. And so right. um, in some cases, the employees at those hospitals may not personally be Catholic and they might not personally have a problem with it. But presumably many of them are. And many of the, these doctors and nurses are personally, you know, deeply morally opposed to some of the things. And so that's that's part of the problem here. Well, and certainly anytime you're working at an institution or someplace, especially one that has a specific mission, you probably are, it, it attracts and gra- certain people to gravitate towards working in that, that place, and they have probably a, a shared set of values. And, and right, like even if you force the hospital and the for- hospital side, okay, we'll stay open because we feel for some reason, then you still have to find people to actually perform it. And I don't think you can compel people to, to do that. And now, I suppose the state in some levels probably could. It could say, well, you could just lose your license if you don't, you know, if you pass a state law, which is the next question, right? So there, it it feels to me like the last six months to a year, things have really sort of been this, the issue of abortion is suddenly being forced to the forefront where I felt like it really wasn't an issue for about 10 years or so. You see all these states passing laws one way or the other, right? You have you know, heartbeat laws in, in the South, you have laws in the Midwest that are in Iowa that are, again, I think it's sort of like a heartbeat law as well. As soon as the heartbeat that it's no longer illegal to do abortion after six weeks. And then you have the other extremes where you have almost the babies delivered, um, or I should say fetus. Uh, and then at that point, it's still okay to, you know, abort the, 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 uh, the, the baby. Do you feel like this? I mean, this is getting pushed to the Supreme Court at this point, right? I mean, yes. at some point, it, there's the, there's no way you can rectify these different laws, right? Yeah, there was this, there was a, I think a sort of um, a stasis or an equilibrium that we had uh, had been in for a number of years, where both sides felt like, well, 
Roe v. Wade is the law of the land and it's not going anywhere. And so people weren't weren't thinking very much in terms of those types of legal pushes to pass laws. But because the balance of the Supreme Court has changed a lot in the last couple of years, there's now a sense on both sides. I think there's a sense of optimism on the side of pro-life, the pro-life activist community, that perhaps if we can get a case back to the Supreme Court, we might get a different solution than we got in 1972. And there's also a sense of panic and, and just terror on the, on the side of the sort of pro-choice activists who are, are, are worrying about the same thing. And they're, and they're thinking, like, uh, everything we've worked for, for could be lost. And so we, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And so that's kind of what's going on here. It, it seems unusual to me because I would feel like I, I understand the, the thought from pro-life advocates that maybe this is an opportunity to change, to overturn. The, they can look at, say, Obviously, it's nonpartisan in the Supreme Court, but everyone knows sort of generally speaking who's conservative, who's not. You never really know how someone's going to rule and how they sort of view the law, whether they're a traditionalist and originalist, where they follow precedents, you know, what sort of their hierarchy of making decisions at the Supreme Court. Uh, but I would think if you're someone who's pro-choice, I would think you'd want to try and maintain as low profile as possible. The last thing you want is to force any sort of decision to be – because I think if all these cases were going to just restricting abortion in certain states – I think you would think, well, maybe it won't be forced to the Supreme Court. But if I'm going to have the exact extreme opposite, I'm really forcing the issue that now the Supreme Court's going to have no, no choice but to say we've got to deal with this. I mean, well, not exactly. Actually, I, I okay. think um, I think the 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 Southern states that are passing these heartbeat bills, they are intentionally angling to get the cases sure, up no to question. the Supreme Court. I think what's happened in New York, which is the the main one where one of these uh, bills on the other side became law. Um, what they're actually doing is they're hedging against if Roe v. Wade were overturned, ah, I see. would we have sh- stronger laws protecting the right to abortion on the books and at the state level? Because Roe v. Wade, uh, you, you, you may recall, is actually, um, it doesn't say abortion is illegal or legal. It says it, c- it restricts the right of um, the right of states to pass restrictions on abortion. Right. So if you repealed Roe v. Wade, it wouldn't just ban <coughs> abortion overnight. It would just open up the possibility for states to ban abortion. Um, and so New York State and some other places like that said, oh, "Well, we we want to go ahead and get out in front of this one and make it clear that we're not going to be we're not going to be banning abortion in New York State." And that, I guess that makes a lot of sense because then you're saying you're, yeah, right, okay. So that if the assumption is that it's going to become a, a a federalist issue, right? That's going to we're going to push it back to the states. The states decide they have their own cultures, their own sort of values, and so we're going to let them experiment and decide how they want to define abortion and life and things like that. So by by having these laws, you're staking your claim right now that we are the bluest of blue, the reddest of red states or whatever, however you want to look at it, right? Yeah. And, I, and I do think that it, it was a, a miscalculation. I think probably both sides are miscalculating with these laws. Um, in the case of the New York bill and the similar ones in Rhode Island and Virginia that didn't, that didn't end up passing this past year, um, I mean, I, I really feel like this idea of uh, abortion right up until the mi- a minute before delivery, um, even when the mother's health is fine and the baby's health is fine, this goes so far beyond what even extreme pro ext- people who identi- self-identify as extremely pro-choice are in favor of, that they're, they're not doing themselves any favor by, by essentially coming out in favor of infanticide. Um, but I also worry that, that the pro-choice activists are also... Um, pro-life. The, sorry, yeah, yes, right. the pro-life activists are also getting a little bit out ahead of where their base is because even pro-lifers often are uncomfortable with the idea of, I mean, there's just, there's just a lot of messiness and there's a lot of messiness oh, in sure. public opinion around this issue. And so I would be careful. I, if it were up to me, I would say 
um, let's be careful not to not to go too fast because the political backlash could actually make things worse for our cause if we're not careful. Right. Yeah. It's the Overton window, right? You want to try and main, try to remain somewhere in the point that people is a politically acceptable solution. At six weeks, you're looking at people are only at that point sort of getting a positive pregnancy test, and so yes, the fetus has developed quite a bit, and it's not certainly not viable outside, but. It, it does make it, it's more complicated for people because you're not showing, it's, you know, when you're pregnant and things like that. So, um, I guess uh, with the Supreme Court, I mean, how, how do you feel that that would actually turn out? I mean, it's the big speculation, right? Is it, is it something, I think at this point the Supreme Court is going to address it, don't you think? I mean... Increasingly, it seems likely that they'll have to, yeah. And, and assuming nothing changes, which is always a bad assumption, <laughs> because people die and retire, whatever. Uh, what do you think the, the court would do right now at this point? I mean, is it really that much pro-life versus pro-choice? Yeah. I don't really think it is, but I wouldn't. Your I wouldn't put money on um, the Supreme Court, even under its current configuration, which is far more conservative than it has been in a while. Uh, I would not put money on them overturning Roe v. Wade. And that's part of the reason that I worry about this strategy, this legal strategy that's being pursued on the pro-life side, um, because even if the the justices are um, more sympathetic to to that case than they have been in the past, um, I te- unfortunately, for better or worse, I think the Supreme Court uh, tends to not outrun public opinion very far. Right. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't until several years after um, public opinion polls showed. 50-60% support for gay marriage that the Supreme Court reversed its precedent on that. Sure. Um, and I and so I suspect, I, I just, I think that the evidence suggests that the justices, they're willing to push out a little ways, but they're not willing to, to go all the way to one extreme or the other when it's still a very contentious issue among the public. Right, and and, I, and probably in issue, other issues that the public doesn't follow, they're probably able to be more extreme, like in free speech issues or because most people don't really pay attention to the intricacies of free speech, right? Yeah, I mean, technical, some more technical legal matters, I'm sure nobody could really understand. M- most people aren't understanding or following those cases anyway, so it's they're not as constrained by public opinion, but as a general matter, I, I think that, and again, you might think this is terrible, they should be following the Constitution and nothing else, and what, it should be irrelevant what the people think, but I don't think that that's actually the way it works in practice. I, I don't think there's any question that that's, <laughs> that's how it works. And, I mean, like you said, it's, it's been sort of an equilibrium for 40, 50 years almost, right, at this point. And so what happens if you upset the apple cart? Is it going to be okay or is it going to be sort of – are you going to have factions? Is it, it could be much worse and, and uglier. Uh, what's interesting, too, though, is that the number of abortions has been decreasing. And there are less abortions now performed than there were – actually, I think even Roe v. Wade's decision came in place. Yet the population's what, uh, 100 million more people or something like that. Uh, what do you th- do? You think that's a do you think the driving force to that is an understanding by people what abortion is? Do you think it's just is it birth control that's more pre- prevalent and Catholics are have embraced it more than just like you know sort of natural methods? Or I mean, what do you think the this is a tough sociological question, but you know what do you think the the driver of that is? I think it's a little bit of all those things. Um, I think that tech technology around ultrasounds certainly plays a role. I think it's much harder to uh, sustain the fiction that, you know, a, a fetus is a ball of cells and not a human being. Clump of cells, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's part of it. Um, I think probably access to birth control is part of it, much much to the chagrin of the Catholic bishops. <laughs> um, 
I, I think, you know, education um, is part of it and, and just sort of um, the, impo- the sort of importance, understanding of the importance of um, waiting until you're married to get, pre- to get pregnant. Increasingly, there's been an, um, a lot of talk among sociologists about how this is one of the keys to um, at an individual, individual level. If you want to dramatically increase your chances of being, of, you know, flourishing in life, if you wait to have kids until after you're married, that is like the difference um, so there's been a lot more talking about that lately, I think, um, after a, a, a number of decades of maybe moving away from talking about things like that. Right. Well, and I feel like uh, even like with other other societies in, you know, Japan or Europe, people are waiting longer to get pregnant, for one thing. And and there's less just underage. I think there's less underage. There are way less underage pregnancies. Right. I mean, and by that, I mean, like under 18 and it almost seems like that is the primary reason that the birth age has gone up so much. And so it, it probably has not changed much for people who are adults as much as there aren't kids getting pregnant as much as in the past. That's right. That's my understanding of the data. And that's a cultural phenomenon probably, I suppose. I don't yeah, yeah. I don't have a. I don't exactly have an explanation. What I think is funny is how there was all this hand-wringing about, about how, you know, teen pregnancies and now suddenly there's all this hand-wringing that the kids are, aren't having sex the way they used to right. and I think we need people sometimes I think like the New York Times will, will never be satisfied with anything they're always going to have to think that everything is a panic uh, because so they can write these stories well if it bleeds it leads and if there's nothing bleeding we got to talk about something we gotta, so we got to pretend that it is right uh, what do you I, I guess uh, what do you think the the future is for at least the Catholic hospitals because it sounds like it not only maybe maybe at this point the abortion issue is sort of there's precedent at least a legal precedent so it's probably harder to bring a case up at this point so oh, soon continuing to try sure but I mean I think at this point you've got to see the writing the wall right I mean it's not probably going to change much unless you have some new compelling or you get I guess get the right judge or something like that but the transgender thing is certainly more interesting in the sense that it's a newer phenomenon is that is that something they're starting to push or is there not a lot of oh yeah no they're they're um there's been a number already of lawsuits brought against, like, again, mostly Catholic hospitals um, for not providing what they call gender-confirming care. Um, and and they, they so far have not been successful as far as I know, but they're going to keep trying. I don't, I don't see any indication that the ACLU and their allies are going to just say, like, well, we tried, we failed. Let's move on to some other issue. I think they're going to keep coming. And um, the thing that makes me nervous is that as – as the culture changes around this issue and people become more accepting of the idea of, um, you know, trans, um, transitions and Mm -hmm. whatnot. Um, it, it, the cultural bulwark against a legal ruling going against the hospital, the, um, hospitals becomes eroded. So there's a legal bulwark, which is the first amendment. There's also the cultural bulwark, which is people don't want to, it doesn't seem right to them that we should be forcing people, a hospital, Catholic hospital to, to, provide these services but if if it gets to the point where everybody no you know nobody bats an eye um over the trans issue more broadly in the culture then it's much easier for a sort of activist judge so to speak to hand down that ruling um so i I worry that that's the direction we're going i mean i think personally i think i feel like it's going to you could just it would be not hard to find a surgeon who's unwilling to do a double mastectomy who's a who does it for breast cancer uh and take them to court i mean i I mean i think that's maybe i shouldn't be providing legal advice (laughs) but i feel like that's where the the real risk is because i think the hospital 
is is all, they've got lots of money, but you can take on individual practitioners and really, I don't know. I mean, I think that's a significant risk. Yeah, yeah. I'm not actually. I'm not sure if there have been any lawsuits brought against individuals. I'll have to look into that. But it, I don't know. Is it any different than the you know the baker, or the photographer, or whatever? No, right. I, I mean, it feels so, like yeah. the same sort of thing, right? Like I'm denying you some service that I'd provide anyone else because they had cancer, but you're just wanting it because you know we do mastectomies prophylactically for people who have a history of breast cancer in their family, and you know all I want is because I think I'm a man, and so I want the. I mean, I don't know how. I think, you know, people can say there's moral differences, and I think you can make an obvious argument for that. But is that a, a compelling enough to say that you can deny someone that you're surgical skills? I, yeah, yeah. I in don't this know. environment. I don't know, because I, I would never have believed that the that the lawsuits trying to f- and the, the legal crusade to force bakers to make cakes for gay weddings <laughs> would get as far as it did. I mean, fortunately, it does seem like that was resolved on sort of the right the side of sanity so, so far. But, um, but yeah... I, I agree that it seems analogous and probably we are going to start to see this case being made on the grounds you're, t- you're describing. Uh, so where can people find more stuff that you've written about? I know you're man- mainly an editor, as you told me earlier. So you do. Yes. You do. Um, I mostly spend most of my time doing behind the scenes work um, for Reason Magazine. But I also do write sometimes for Reason. And you can see my stuff at Reason.com. And I also occasionally contribute to America Magazine, which is a Jesuit um, magazine. Uh, so you can also, you know, Google America Magazine and see some of my things there, including the article I wrote about the ACLU lawsuits against Catholic hospitals. Right, and that will be linked in the show notes at the Paradox. That's D-O-C-S dot com. Uh, and obviously you tweet too. Yes, so at Slade SR. So please absolutely follow me, engage with me on Twitter. I'd love to, to hear from some of the listeners. And from what I've learned over the last couple of days, she loves polling and she thinks it's great and <laughs> super accurate. You know, it can be. <laughs> you just got to use it well. I did. I worked in the polling industry for a few years before I started at Reason. So, um, But I'm also a little bit critical of the way that sometimes people twist the polling numbers to get the results they want. Well, and before we close it, that actually is interesting, too, because we always, you know, we're here talking about how we think that, you know, it's more acceptable to, or the, the people feel a certain way about abortion or various issues. It's probably harder to gauge what the where the nation stands on anything right because if we think polling is less accurate if i'm looking at twitter or i'm looking at facebook or i'm looking at the nightly news or something to try and gauge where is the public on whatever issue i mean do we have like a silent majority like with nixon claim do we have i mean how do we really know where where people stand on various well, things right i would actually so so although i have been I've been critical of people who put too much stock in polls. Um, the polls that are most unreliable are the ones that are trying to predict how people are gonna, going to vote in a future election. So predicting the future. Right. The polls, the, the, the research that's conducted by people like Gallup and Pew Research Center and, and you know various universities, um, where they're just trying to gauge where's the public stand on a particular issue right now, I think is more reliable. So I'm not, I, I think that many of the methodological problems that make ho- so-called horse race polling, you know, pre-election yeah, prediction yeah. style polling, not, not reliable at all, don't apply, they, they, they don't apply nearly as much to the sort of um, temperature gauging polls of, you know, where does the public stand at this moment on this issue? Um, there, there are still a lot of problems, you know, people aren't as likely to answer the phone and all of that. That's right, definitely right. true, but it's easier to correct for those um, because we know we, we can we can sort of weight the numbers according to census data and this, the the demographic makeup of the country is pretty well known it's a given but the the future demographic makeup of the electorate who's going to actually show up on election day that we don't know in advance so pollsters just have to guess when they're weighting the data in those cases sure and I always feel like especially with election it's tough to determine what motivates people and 
and they don't even know what's going to motivate them in two months and what and and the sort of calculations they make is strategically sort of what they're everybody do. says they're a nine they're their likelihood of turning out to vote is like a nine out of ten but 90 percent <laughs> of people do not turn out to vote so that <laughs> they're either lying or they're just wrong <laughs> all right well thank you stephanie so much for joining me today thank you Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>